We did it. We did it, Matt. We did it. I think, oh, where are we at? 40, 40 something times. Yeah, 40, and you have times. not been turned in to the police. So far, so good. You know. Yeah, but when we hear these sounds, then it must be either Tuesday or Friday. And here we are. Um, again, another Plastic Climate Future episode. And uh, we already pre warned our guests that uh, yes. we start with this jingle. And I see he didn't disconnect. So, uh, hello and welcome to John Bessant. John Bessant. Who is John Bessant? Over yeah. to you. Hi, and uh, thank you so much for having me. And uh, I like the tune. Um, as you can see behind <laughs> me, I've got a few instruments, so I've already got some right. ideas for how you might uh, upgrade it. So we maybe <laughs> okay. innovate. Innovation. Innovate. <laughs> <laughs> so we, we, right away, we, we get into this the right great. topic. So it's innovation tonight. It's innovation. And... Um, I can bring my guitars as well to this room. I just have to wait until my kids are sleeping, and then we can we can have a session afterwards. You know. But oh my before God. that, John, um, thanks for being here with us for sure. Um, and uh, where are you tuning in from tonight? So I'm now back home in the southwest of England. So it's the bit that sticks out towards the U.S. Um, uh, one way from London, but it's uh, it's very beautiful, and I'm on top of a hill, looking down over a river with the sea and the hills. It's a it's a nice place to be, and it's for once not raining, so it's good. Next. That's super. That's super beautiful. Yeah, I think uh, we 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 have to say also thank you to to my John um, for <laughs> inviting you because uh, there is. Uh, personal connection between between the two of you so maybe let's start with this yeah i mean uh, you know indeed uh john john besson i've had the, uh, the the privilege of getting to know him uh, i think it was back in 2006 is when we first met uh and uh, and so this is really really a real delight to be able to to make a reconnection uh and just the, the just to the relevance of of the work that john is doing today uh, is is equal to what it was when, when I had a chance to meet him uh, 15, 16, 17 years ago. So so this is really just also this sense of continuity uh, is really really satisfying. And uh, so 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 yeah. Uh, so John, I mean, um, uh, get into uh, uh, all about you tonight, you know, and. But um, you, you almost go without introduction, but I'm going to let you introduce yourself. Uh, but, but I'd first begin by just asking, you know, or just putting out there uh, what you say, creating value from ideas. Uh, I read that uh, recently, uh, reading, updating on, on uh, the work you're doing now and how you're communicating it. And, and uh, wow, there, I just saw it there right there, just putting it in four words. Uh, this what the whole thing is about. Uh, we'll get into that. Maybe we can get into that by first saying, you know, what is that, and how does that connect to who you are and what you do, and and then and and then just take it from there, John. Okay, lovely. Well, let me make a, another connection. This is obviously going to be all about connections. Um, once upon a time, I was like you guys. I was a chemical engineer, 
Uh -huh. so, don't trust me near an oil refinery <laughs> these days. I'll blow it up. But once upon a time, that was what I trained. And um, I guess I got into this field um, out of uh, uh, a mixture of frustration and excitement. Frustration because working for big companies, this innovation yeah. thing, creating new processes, new products, it could have been managed so much better than it was. Uh, and the opportunities around creating things, making things better with innovation. And I got the chance to do a research, a doctorate, whilst working in a chemical company. So I was actually being an engineer. We were uh, automating a process plant, one of the very first in the UK at the time. This was a long time ago. Um, and uh, it was great. But I was studying innovation on the side and writing about it. And I got a taste for it, which is how I came into the research and the university world which is where I've stayed ever since, but not too far from industry. Um, I did also dig out, I thought you might be interested in this, uh, my very first publication, like all PhDs, my supervisor sticks his name on it, but this was a paper called Plastics Waste Disposal and Recovery. Oh my that was goodness. was my very first scientific paper. And, uh, and basically, you can imagine, this was 1975, so we're talking wow. 50 years ago nearly. Oh. But this was... Um, my, my undergraduate research with him on um, uh, taking batteries, car batteries, uh -huh. and my colleague, my other student friend, did the lead recycling, and I did the plastics, which, as you yeah. can imagine, 1975 was an immature business. Wow. But it hasn't gone away. It's as big as ever. So oh, there's wow. a connection there. Not many, John, but uh, yeah. So, <laughs> but yeah, I'm... I'm an ex-engineer who still has a fascination with that world. So I'm delighted to join. I'm really interested in what you guys are trying to do. Yeah. Wow. Bingo. Bingo. This is great. Great, Matt. I mean, uh, Matt, you, you have any follow-on before we move on? Yeah. Yeah. I, like, I'm just amazed because I, I just came, came from a workshop where we were talking about uh, battery recycling, you know, 50 years later, people uh -huh. pick up on this and that's the big, big, huge topic. Um, but but as uh, John already said, so creating value from ideas, um, is that how you would define innovation? So it's a great, great question because um, the reason I became a teacher, and I love teaching, and that's really what I was doing with John when we first met, but okay. the reason I became a teacher was very selfish because when I try and explain something to somebody else, I understand it better myself. And so I started out trying to explain this innovation thing that I'd been studying. And I used all these long, laborious definitions that were maybe a whole page long. It's taken me 40 years, but I've slimmed it down. So essentially, innovation's creating value from ideas. But I'd qualify that because we very often default in the business world to value equals money. And of course it does, and it drives the economy. But there's all this thing about social value as well. And social value for me is hugely important. Most of my work these days is in the humanitarian sector. So I work with people like Save the Children and the Red Cross, trying to help them innovate more effectively and in a situation where it really is sometimes life and death. It's, we talk about survival and innovation. It really matters there. So the notion of social value, which is what you guys are concerned with, the fact that sustainability is top of our agenda. It's got to be. Yeah, this is all about social value, ideally combining the two. So we can still run commercial businesses and have an economy driven by that, but also have a, a, an eye on the social value. But yeah, that's my latest installation. I'm not sure I can get it much shorter than that, but yeah, creating value from ideas seems to do it. 
It, it works pretty well for, for, for someone as simple minded as me. I have to say that it works for me, you know, <laughs> or uh, for the five, five year old, uh, drunk little kid that we always have to, uh, point out, like if someone is explaining something complicated, we always ask him to, and now tell it in such words that a five, a drunk five year old will understand a drunk and five year old. <laughs> Yeah. Managing innovation. That's another another uh, term that, that that comes up uh, when, when I when I come to to, to uh, <laughs> investigating what you've been doing over the past year, sir. Uh, and and uh, managing innovation. I mean, uh, what what an interesting term. It's also isn't this? I mean, would this also be regarded uh, if I make may call it this as kind of your opus? Uh, and and as far as your, your the work that you're doing uh, over the years, I mean. Is there not like six editions of this very uh, work out there? And, and if so, take that and explain this to us. Okay, well, the, the short answer is we, I'm currently writing the eighth edition. So we're, eighth, we're, we're okay, wow. <laughs> yeah, but uh, but no, um, go back to what I said. When I was doing my research in a mm -hmm. chemical company, I didn't know, but we clearly could try and get a handle on managing it better. Yeah. And that's really what I spent my research career doing I think I've got some good news, which is that we actually do know how to manage innovation. It's not simply gambling, uh, and it's clearly much more than just a light bulb flashing above somebody's head. It's a process, but like any process, we can understand, we can map it, and we can manage it. Um, can't guarantee success every time, but if you look back, there's about a hundred years worth of good research, and more importantly, good practical experience from people who've tried and sometimes failed but we can learn from that. But we've learned a lot of lessons about what we can do to enhance our chances of succeeding with this. And we've reached a point now, which I think is a relevant one, where last year the International Standards Organization, the ISO, published a standard. You know they've got these standards around quality and environmental management. So ISO 56002, to give it its technical name, talks about an innovation management system. And what I like about that, and I wouldn't disagree, I was one of the advisors contributing to it, but what I like about that is it doesn't say one size fits all. You've got to do work, you've got to adapt it, but the principles, whether you're in a humanitarian agency or a small startup or a giant chemical company, the principles are the same. So for me, I'm, I'm, I'm reasonably confident, if nothing else, that when I teach a course, which I've been doing for 40 years, um, I have actually got something to say that's proven to be useful for the various people who take it. So yeah, I think we can manage it, um, but we've got to be smart about managing. Now, I was going to say one other thing, of course, is it's a moving target. So yeah. yes, up till today, May 18th, we can manage innovation. Tomorrow, the world might change. The context is constantly changing. So we've got to keep upping our game. So okay. it's, it's, a, it's a moving target. Yeah, now that you said it's a moving target, and I think this is, uh, now we live also in very dynamic times. Um, <laughs> how do you see that today? Uh, how does the chemical industry manage innovation today as compared with, you know, your experiences that, that you started having in, in, the, in the late 70s? Wow. <laughs> That's a, a nice big question. Um, well, I, I guess in the number, Ways. First of all, they, they, there are obvious challenges. The climate has moved undoubtedly uh, through concern for the planet, which unfortunately, or 
in challenging ways, reflects heavily on the chemical industry. Yeah. We are the bad guys who pollute. We're the bad guys who dig up all the raw materials we haven't got enough of, etc., etc. So there's a narrative which puts the industry very much under the spotlight. <laughs> Behind that, so that's a big one already in terms of managing innovation. And it does mean that the smart organizations will be clever in not just greenwashing, but seriously address sustainability as a strategic management priority. I think there are other things. I think I've noticed the inevitable shift from um, big chemical plants where it was all about scale economics. That's what I trained on. You know, big is beautiful. It isn't anymore. Uh, it's a world of customization and differentiation, even if you are large. In fact, uh, one of my heroes, if you like, is Jim Ratcliffe, who runs Ineos, which is yeah. you know, a huge company. But he basically bought up little bits of often the niches that the big players wanted to get rid of because they were a, a, a difficult sideline. What he actually did was really smart. He realized this is the way the industry is going. Specialities, um, yes, you still need chemicals in volume, but even there, uh -huh. um, it's about targeting different markets. So I think there's a, been a fundamental change, which again is all about innovation. And if you're going to innovate offering lots of different products, then you have to innovate your processes to be able to make those things in smaller batches, faster delivery, and so on. It's a story I'm sure you hear many times, but I think it's a very interesting industry. I've never lost my love of the industry. I just don't think I would hire me as an engineer right now. You, you know, John, I mean, um, uh, what, what you're saying, uh, I, I was also looking back, uh, kind of refreshing some of my, 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 my re memories and, and also uh, what, listening to some of your more recent stuff and, uh, what you talk about in exploring innovation space, uh, when, when I when I think of this, and I'd like you to talk about that a little bit more here in a minute. Uh, and I think about, uh, in, indeed, um, yeah, we we talk a lot about plastic climate and future, and we also drill down a lot about the the the, the key issue of plastic waste today, and and the issues in the value chain. So um, uh, it's not all that we talk about, but we do talk a lot about this because it's it's obviously if if key importance. Uh, and, and and the solutions that are coming in place to to help solve problems, uh, and and then when I so in this context, and I think about uh, your 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 methodology and practice of exploring innovation space, and how that could really be uh, interesting and valuable for if you will the 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 plastics value chain to hear about, then thinking about solving problems of. Uh, plastic waste and and increasing circularity and sustainability. So, when you when uh, could you talk about that a little bit? Exploring innovation space for for these concerns. Yeah. So don't let me become a teacher because you're switching on my teaching switches. Okay. So I, I won't let you do that. But I guess even when we met John quite a long time back, um, this is one of the core things that I would teach, and it's one of the the key takeaways. Um, yeah. We all need to innovate. If we don't change, we're in deep trouble. So that's the stink. But okay, so where? Where do we start? And it's important to have some kind of a, a map or some kind of a, a, a tool to help us work out because we haven't got infinite resources. We need a strategy to innovate. So we use, and I've used for a long time, an approach which really has, um, it's a bit like an innovation compass, you know, north, south, east, and west. Um, and it basically asks some very simple questions. Number one, let's recognize innovation happens on a spectrum of newness from doing what we do a little bit better, you know, what we call optimization, process improvement, product improvement. You know, that's doing what we do better. 
And the evidence is most innovation most of the time is on the end of the spectrum. But occasionally you get the radical stuff, the big step, which moves things forward. So you've got that, but you can apply that in one of four directions or anywhere in the space, the 360 degree space of a, of a compass. So typically we can think about product innovation, changing what we offer the world. And in chemicals, of course, that is very much based around product. Uh, and we can also change our processes, the ways we create and deliver those products. And that's classically been the space which almost any organization thinks about innovation in. Okay. But there's other ways of doing it. Um, very, very simply, we can think about a product and a process which don't change, but we change the context in which they're placed. So we move to a new market area, a geographical region, or we change the story in people's heads. Um, one of my favorites was a brand which is now owned by Suntory, the Japanese firm, but it's originally a brand very well known in Britain. It's a health drink. And it's, it's a wonderful drink because it's basically water. You take uh -huh. glucose syrup, you dilute it and carbonate it. Boom. So it's fizzy sugar water. Um, and it was marketed for years as an aid to convalescence. And anybody in the UK will recognize it. it absolutely. Uh, I remember it as a child. It's a hideous drink. It tastes foul, but it gives you a, a buzz. Of course it does. So that was its target. Sick people. The same product today, and it hasn't really changed in sort of 80 years of life, but it's still around. But now, of course, it's targeted at wellness. It's sponsoring the Olympic Games. It's all about gyms. I don't know what you're drinking, John, but it's very much that sort of thing. And it's the same. So what you've got there is a classic piece of position innovation. Starbucks have done it and all the coffee houses. They've changed a drink, a nice hot drink, into something which is available in so many different flavors. Henry Ford did it. The motor car from a luxury product that few could afford to something everyone could. So we can play around with the position. And that is quite a driver in terms of where we tell our story and what story we tell. But the other one, which I think is the big challenge, particularly in the context of um, what we're talking about, is changing the way we think. These days we use the term business model. But, you know, what are we about? What do we do? And we can change that fundamentally sometimes, and that opens up all sorts of opportunities. Uh, a good friend of mine who works in the UK uh, government innovation promotion uh, is also a chemist. I have a lot of chemists as friends, but uh, but he uh, he's great value, really good value. You should get him on your podcast sometime. But, but uh, he talks about the notion of servitization and particularly rent a molecule. And that's brilliant. If you think about servitization, a lot of manufacturers now are realizing you can make far more money if you develop a long-term relationship and sell the functionality. If I'm a dry cleaner, I actually don't want PCFE, whatever. I don't want you know, trichloroethylene, whatever the solvent is. I want something to clean stuff. So give me the functionality and I'll pay for that as a service business. Rolls-Royce, the big aero engine manufacturer, doesn't sell engines anymore. It rents the power they offer by the hour. It's changed their whole approach. They've got to get really close with the airlines. If you go to the hangars at LA or Heathrow or wherever, you'll find the Rolls-Royce people in there fixing the engines, not the British Airways or the American Airlines. And it's the same model with Caterpillar and their earth-moving equipment. And it's potentially something that the chemical industry can adopt. And it changes the whole notion, uh, but it does hugely bring to the fore what's the value in use. And if the value in use now has to include a sustainability component, which I think it should, that's going to come in. 
So I think we've got to move away from that seeing innovation as product and process and open up the space a bit that we can explore. We actually thought about asking you something about circularity, but now you just <laughs> came up with the, you know, textbook examples of uh, how circularity and circular economy can enter into uh, or provide solutions um, by, by, by basically saying, well, we, we need to change also the mindset, right? Um, and I think, uh, what, what you just tapped on is, and and when we come back to the creating value from ideas, um, theme, one word that, that is in this, uh, little sentence is creating. And I think creating has also something to do with creativity in that sense. Right. It was not always like this. Like you just said, this servitization, um, thinking or like, you know, changing the mindset is something that. Not everyone could adopt in uh, in the innovation process. How do you think, or or what are motivators to to foster this kind of thinking, like to 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 drive this creativity, to to change the approach or the mindset or the context in which we um, yeah uh, try to 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 solve challenges? Yeah, it's a big question. I mean, I, I think. Um, at, at a very crude level, and I think you said we can be very exclusive. Yeah. I think it's fear and greed are the two things that drive many businesses to change. You know, they're either really scared because they can't carry on and they're going to lose what they've got, or hey, we can get a bigger piece of the pie. That's very crude. But I think nonetheless, being aware of an environment which is challenging, which is, you know, we talk about this volatile, uncertain, yeah. all this bullcrap <laughs> stuff. If we recognize that environment and really take it on board, it's going to force us to think hard about innovation right. and also not me too innovation. In, in, the, in the, my field, the theory of innovation, there are things called trajectories. You know, Somebody comes up with a new process and then everyone else will come up with it. And so the, the leader's advantage gradually gets whittled away and so on. Right. So in a sense, it's a game, it's a herd game really. Um, so if you want to be different, you've got to constantly be exploring that space and have some part of the organization prepared to think and take risks. They may not always pay off, but it's exploring. Mm -hmm. One of my regrets, I suppose, one of the things I was very lucky about when I was doing all my studies, we still had ICI, Imperial Chemical Industries. But what they were particularly famous for was their incredible research labs in the northwest of England which were researching amazing stuff. They were, of course, researching chemistry and process technology and so on, but they were doing all sorts of other stuff, stuff that today is really cutting edge around project management and marketing and so on. They had some of the money from a profitable business plowed in to the kind of brain part, which is thinking of the future. Right. And I think the danger in particularly industries which became, as we discussed, commodified, is you just think about the, the margin. And you, you, the, the research is easy to cut on the long-term stuff and the surprising collaborations, all of those go. Mm -hmm. um, but maybe I could also just make one other comment back to your circularity, because if I take sustainability, mm -hmm. we did some work for a very good Canadian outfit, the Network for Business Sustainability, and it's a whole collection of large companies, mostly North American but they were interested in a kind of framework to think about sustainability. And we did some research, we looked at cases, we looked at academic research, 
And we came up with a kind of three-level model. Um, and the first level is sort yourself out. You know, if you're serious about sustainability, it's actually quite smart because if you tidied up your processes and your other things, you can probably save a lot of money. If you just reduce your energy and if you um, improve your logistics. So this is the doing what we do better bit. And if you don't do that, you're really rather stupid. You know, so, yeah. so that's the kind of inevitable thing, especially in a climate where regulation is going to push you increasingly in that direction. The second is what we just talked about at the firm level, the incredible, the, the um, creative thinking. What, what could we do that's different? So can we change at the firm level? Because we can control all of that. We can choose to invest in this or divest that. But the big challenge, and the one which I think is going to make a big difference to saving the planet, is the next level. And that's the system level. And of course, the system level, you don't control everything. So you've got to find ways of working out who should you partner with? Why should they partner with you? How can we collectively improve the chain? Or it's not the chain anymore, that's probably the wrong metaphor, but improve the network. And that's, of course, where circularity really starts to play interesting games. Um, I remember going to a, we ran a, a lot of workshops around this and Interface, the flooring company, very, very good. And of course, you know, yeah. a lot of what they use is plastic. And mm -hmm. uh, they were particularly concerned about um, the fishermen using or misusing um, uh, fibers because they could make good fishing nets out of the plastic fibers. And of course, that was then having an impact on the fish and so on. So they were having to discover a whole global network, a whole global system, and then the, how can we intervene in that so that we can stop the damage to the ocean, stop the waste to the fish, all this kind of stuff. So for me, that's the level of thinking, but it's for many companies, you know, that, that's a big ask, but we're going to need it. Well, I think it's there that maybe trade bodies, um, research institutes, and so it's at that level that the coordination might happen that might eventually lead to system change. Yeah. Could we break it then down to say, okay, the most crucial changes that will come will be to when when driving creativity and collaboration <clears throat> in order to have this system change. Because just like putting together what you just said, like these two two yeah, two words actually popped uh, to my head, to my head now. So that, like, how can we now, you know, first have interdisciplinary collaborations or even ecosystem where where that works, and how can we still foster creativity, which sometimes becomes very difficult today because you have such an information overflow that you know people forget to be creative. It's a great question. Uh, maybe two things to answer it with. Two examples. Um, the first is what you made, interdisciplinarity, bringing mm -hmm. different knowledge worlds together. What we actually know is when you do that, surprising things happen because you're that. so locked in your world, you don't know what someone else might bring. Right. And of course there, if you look at the pandemic, COVID-19, that was amazing. We were in a, a serious crisis. And at the time, we didn't know whether we'd survive and come out of it. It was a real sort of existential crisis. What happened was first with protective equipment, and later mm -hmm. on with the vaccines themselves. But the coming together of amazingly different perspectives. You know, we had Formula One motor racing people teaming up with doctors, teaming up with aerospace manufacturers, essentially bringing whatever knowledge was needed. And I see a lot of this in the humanitarian sector. 
because uh -huh. their life is constant crisis and they'll take any help they can get. But uh -huh. actually what you get sometimes at the interface is new knowledge and new direction. So that's one part of the story. The other is what I just said there about system level facilitation. Um, I did some fascinating work in South Africa a few years back um, with the fruit canning industry, peaches to be precise. Really? And very, very briefly, um, South Africa sells peaches to the European Union um, and they're very tasty, but they essentially grow them, then put them in cans and ship them. And then Europe slaps a 25% tariff on top of that. So it's really hard to be competitive and make a living. And, then, and the industry was in crisis. And the local MP for Cape Town, the area where they were growing it, called a meeting and we were part of the facilitation team. And what basically he said was, look, I want everybody who's a player. I want the farmers who grow it. I want the canners who put it into cans. I want the steel makers who make the cans. I want the shipping. I want everybody in the room. And part one was, as you'd imagine, Oh, isn't it awful? It's a terrible problem. And it's not my fault. It's his fault. It's her fault. It's their fault. So you pass the problem around. Everyone doesn't own the problem. And eventually he said, yeah. And the result is we're all going down the tubes. So let's take another look. And we then did some very simple system mapping, just classic sort of piece of paper on a wall. And what we found was as people began to tell the story, so the system level story came up. And one, for me, Quite powerful insight. At one point, people said, it's the cost of shipping that's really hurting us because our cans are too heavy. The cans are made with thick steel, so they weigh a lot, etc. And so everybody points at the steel maker and says, it's your fault. Uh, why don't you offer this thing called double rolled steel, which is a very thin steel. Uh, 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 and he said, well, because... I can't build a plant, it's going to cost me X million, um, and there isn't the demand in South Africa. And then this wonderful moment, there's a company, you probably know, Del Monte, which is a global company. Okay, the man from Del Monte is advertising for it. And the man from Del Monte, he said, um, well, we can peaches all around Africa. Uh, how much capacity do you need? Bing. Wow. At a system level, suddenly something became possible. So it's that level, but it needs that bigger picture, seeing it as a system and some kind of facilitation to, to focus on it. That's what I think we need with our circular economy. That's, for me, where I see the promise. Just to come, come back to this one, because obviously we, we, we talk about different stakeholders. We need to, you know, bring different parties together, people with different backgrounds, maybe speaking different languages, not, not in terms of nationalities, but just simply different languages in terms of technology, right? Or, or, uh, their field of expertise. Um, and, uh, recently, you know, there is more and more discussions also about, uh, using AI and, you know, uh, artificial intelligence entering everyday life, uh, in, in many different levels. Right. Um, how do you, how do you see this as an enabler to maybe accelerate also innovation that like the system change, like the system level innovation, what, what, what is your, your take on that? Okay, so I'm, I'm fascinated by AI right now yeah. and, and the sudden experiment. It's been around, you know, when I was programming computers as a, as a student, there uh -huh. were the early days of Lisp and other things to try and do. It was always out there, but suddenly it is here and it's got something to offer. I think it's, um, 
it, it's a discussion which is rather exaggerated, but as I can distill it, uh, there's a really good paper in the innovation field which says, actually, you know, there's something here if we can see this as a partner. It's not going to replace what we do. It's not going to replace creativity. It's actually pretty stupid. It's predictive text on steroids. And it, it, it's, uh, <laughs> but, but what it can do, and I'm using this myself as a researcher, is be a, a very obliging uh, but a bit stupid research assistant. It's <laughs> ability to find data and bring it in is great, but I've got to tell it precisely what I want, and I've got to make yeah. sure it's bringing me real data, all these. But if you then take that and say, okay, so what we often miss is the big picture. Well, that's actually something AI is rather good at doing. You know, it, and, you know, ChatGPT has got the entire internet from 2021 as its data source. That's a lot of information. None of us could process that, even if we were all in the same room together. So it can begin to do some of that work, we still got to do our part. So I think there's something in there. Okay. And of course, we're still at early stages. So yeah, I mean, I'm an optimist, I'm a technology optimist, but I think it could be a powerful tool, not least because you know, if you think of the rather simple task of how will I find a new product here, a classic innovation question, well, uh, what's already on the market? What are the market trends? What possibilities might be in that space? Well, that's something it can work on with you and it's rather good at processing masses of data to pick out patterns and trends, which we might miss. So as I say, there's an excellent paper a, a, a friend of mine from Germany wrote in the Journal of Product Innovation Management. But instead of just theorizing, he challenged ChatGPT. He said, all right, imagine I'm a manufacturer of outdoor equipment, hiking boots and rucksacks and things. I want you to analyze what's on the market, find the gaps. I want you to do some trend analysis. What's emerging, particularly in chat rooms. Don't give me the market surveys. They're already out of date. What are people talking about? Where's the buzz among hikers and so on? Pick that up and generate me some ideas I didn't think of. And it performed quite well. Um, so, but the, hopefully the conclusion was not perfectly. It needs good prompting. It's a good but rather slow, sorry, it's a very fast, but rather stupid assistant. So yeah, you need uh, to work with it. But uh, no, I think this is in that space. Yeah. So you have to have a, some, some, there needs to be some initiated human knowledge uh, in, uh, in the area to generate the right prompting uh, is, is, is what you're suggesting today. Yeah. Yeah. And that's been my, my, my personal experience as well, yeah. that, that um, I use it a lot to help me. That, that I just can't let, uh, let you get out of here tonight without, bringing this back up again. I'm going to set this up in the context of, I guess, the innovation process. And again, exploring, uh, yeah, you know, uh, well, what you used to talk about, the difference between uh, invention and innovation. I always found that fascinating. Uh, and, you know, ideas are, are good and fine. I, I used to always love to focus on the idea generation part, which is all good and fine, uh, but, but, uh, uh, but but a lot of time can be spent there without moving forward. And but the cheese flavored cigarette. What can you? What is the cheese? The story of the cheese flavored cigarette, please. Uh, and then try to put that in the context of the fact there's so much innovation as you know that's always going on. But in the space of the plastics value chain and the issues that we're trying to deal with. Uh, anyway, over to you. Uh, and then and then we'll we'll let Mac uh, close down. <laughs> So um, thank you for reminding me, but uh, it's, it's another of my staples. No, one of the big problems in innovation is how we think about it. 
And uh-huh. how we think about something shapes what we do about it. So uh-huh. what we pay attention to, what we give the resources to, what we manage. So I challenge managers, how do you think about innovation? What does the word mean? And of course, one of the, one of the default problems is everyone thinks, bing, it's the idea, it's the invention. Uh-huh. And, um, and, and the slide that John's referring to, I, I've got a slide from the US Patent Office with lots of innovations, sorry, lots of inventions which somebody believed it's amazing. Everybody's going to want this, but they don't. And the problem is there's a lot more from the idea, the invention, who to creating value from it. And lots of examples. In English, we talk about something being the best thing since sliced bread. That's okay. a phrase we often use. So I thought, oh, I'll, I'll, I'll dig this one out. And so I studied the origin of sliced bread. And it's a great story, which illustrates your point. Uh, a German immigrant in the States called Otto Rohrwedder decided a bread slicing machine would be good because people were cutting bread and it was laborious. And he thought they would appreciate pre-sliced bread. Um, and it was hard. It's a technical problem because the bread will go stale unless you can keep it pressed together and wrapped and so on. And you've got to find ways of cutting it, etc., etc. So he worked hard, spent all his money, um, launched it and just couldn't get anybody interested, mainly because the bakers thought this is a pain in the backside. You know, it's going to take us twice as long as baking our loaves and selling them so someone else cuts them up. And he was nearly on the edge. It took him 15 years, and finally he persuaded a baker to go in with him if he gave him half the company. So smart baker, um, launched the product, and of course the bakers were the barrier. He was trying to sell to the wrong people. The reality was once it got into houses, families were saying, thank God, this really saves us so much time that we don't have. It took off like a rocket. Within five years, 85% of bread in the United States was pre-sliced. But there's a classic example where the invention, the idea, the patent and all that, long before the reality. So, yeah, for me, it's it's, it's very much, we need lots of good ideas, we need different ideas, but we've also got to follow them through. And that's why we need to think about creating and managing an innovation process. Love it. I, I wanted to ask, have you ever smoked a cheese-flavored cigarette? <laughs> I had no, I had this because I've often used the same slide still. And uh, somebody, of course, pointed out that these days we have everyone, not everyone, people are vaping. Yeah, and yeah. So the notion, uh... maybe not cheese-flavored, but the notion of amazing flavors. Yeah, maybe there was some genius in that after all, you know, because the, yeah. The the way the story was was it was like a, a like like indeed like a, a U.S. patent and it was like look you know it's an idea yes it's unique it's an idea but you know is anyone yeah. really gonna I, I guess indeed maybe Mr. Cheese flavored cigarette has the last laugh I don't know <laughs> yeah that, if you that's why I was asking because if you go to these vaping shops then they have like you yeah. know walls full of different <laughs> flavors so it might be also yeah. cheese and bacon or and something. maybe it's just timing yeah <laughs> yeah indeed, indeed. well. Um, I think uh, there are so many more topics that we can cover. And I think uh, the best would be if we just invite you a second time, John. Um, <laughs> this would be amazing. Um, one thing that that, uh, that I wanted to add here before, before we come to the most important question today. Um, so you have a book, right? Managing Innovation, right? This is... This is one thing where people can can look you up. But what else are you doing, like in your apart from teaching? Where can we find you? Like, where can can people reach out to you, and where can people, you know, you probably have a website. Cool Maybe ideas. he's asking. You probably have a website. <laughs> I, I do indeed. I do indeed. Oh, wow. And, and uh, 
It, it, it's a great question. Uh, um, I guess I've been trying to reinvent myself, to innovate myself. Uh -huh. um, and my sons were helpful. Both of them are teachers in Hong Kong. And about 10 years ago, I went there and I said, I'm writing a new book. And they said, Dad, nobody reads books anymore. It's all video. It's all YouTube. And so that began me thinking. Anyway, long story short, I've been working for a long time now on what we call transmedia, which uh -huh. is, yeah, you might still like the written word. You might want to watch, and that's particularly a younger generation thing. Uh, you might want to listen. I think podcasts are massively underrated. There's many more opportunities when you're driving or walking uh -huh. or running or whatever. You can listen to something. But as a teacher, I've been trying to distill that. I've been trying to use blogs and other things to get ideas out. So long story short, yes, I've got a website. I'd be delighted if anyone visits it. And through that, you can get to the YouTube channel and uh, yeah. and all the other things I've been trying to do. But I suppose I'm trying to tell the story, the same old story as you heard, John, and I've been teaching for 40 years, to tell that story in interesting ways. Like a, including singing about them. So I'm afraid yeah, that's something. I, 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 heard, I heard that song the other day. I, I, I was listening to uh, great stuff, you know, and Matt, Matt turned that back over to you for the most important question. And then. Yeah, that's what I was actually referring to. Where where can people listen to you? Because uh, John, my John told me that uh, <laughs> you have uh, His job. also <laughs> a, a very big talent in you know playing instruments and doing music so uh me as a musician i was wondering whether you also give concerts or maybe you even have your own spotify channel yep i i, I got my own youtube i have put it on youtube I, i'm still uh going to get it onto spotify no i i've been trying to translate it's my long project the yeah. innovation content of my book into songs and <laughs> i'm also taking out so i've just come back from brazil uh, I was supposed to give a keynote speech. I gave five minutes of PowerPoint slides, the usual professor stuff, and 35 minutes of songs, which I think I But uh, no, I, I love it. But it's also, I, I think there's a bit of theory. We, we, we process things in different ways. So yeah, actually, yeah. if you sing something to people, it's coming at them sideways. They might remember it, especially yeah, if you yeah. reinforce oh, okay. it in the front as well. Okay. So that's the, that's the justification, but mostly it's fun. Oh wow! Uh, yeah, if you if you need some support on on tour with guitar or drums, then let me know. Cool. Well, that's that would be great. Eh? The Innovation Band, I like it. Yeah, I've got a website and a YouTube channel. I'm I'm getting there slowly. All right, this is great. Yeah. Well, then then the last most important question, especially from for for you as an as an active musician, uh, we have a Plastic <laughs> Climate Future playlist, and on this playlist we collect songs from our guests. Um, so do you have one or two songs that you think they should definitely go on the playlist because either they connect to your work or they connect to our theme or they're just simply great songs that people should listen to? They could be even songs that you've written yourself. <laughs> I was going to say, so if, if, if you'll indulge me, I'll, I'll suggest three, uh, two, two, two by other great people and one of mine, which if you like, I'll even sing to you right now. Let's do that. So, um, so my, my two on the playlist, certainly, um, he was singing about it a long time ago, but it's still important. Marvin Gaye, what's going on? Um, wow. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the anthem for sustainability. But the other one, which really was quite powerful, um, uh, my university, Exeter University, had quite early on a partnership with the WWF 
And we had okay. our MBA was called a One Planet MBA. So okay. strong sustainability feature. And we ran a show in London, a big meeting, and David Putnam, the film director, agreed to speak at it. So it was a great, you know, uh, launch. And, uh, and I was impressed. I thought, well, this guy talks it, but he clearly believes it. Uh-huh. Wow. Not only did he give a passionate speech, but at the end, he said, I'd like to leave you with some music. Jackson Brown, After uh-huh. the Deluge. Oh, wow. And it's a really great song about sustainability. And what happens if we don't fix it? Uh-huh. So those would be That's my it. two on the playlist, without a question. The last one you can sing. I'm, I'm, this is going to be, well, yeah. Let's go for this. We're all ears. If you really can bear it, this is where you're oh, you listening. All right. Let, let me get my big lighter. I'm going to light my big while you're singing here. Hang on. <laughs> <laughs>